Welcome to Bridging Worlds, Adam Art Gallery's podcast content accompanying the exhibitions Lucien Resources Everything and Megan Dunn's Mermaid Chronicles. These shows ran through in the gallery until December 2022. Although two distinct exhibitions, they align around similar notions of personal obsessions and private fantasies. In Resources Everything, the material produced by his uncle Gerald O'Brien was completely secret until after his death, whereas Dunn's The Mermaid Chronicles is a celebration of all things merpeople. This episode is entitled Life and Times of Gerald O'Brien. O'Brien held many roles during his long life. He had been a radar operator in the Air Force, a businessman, a city councillor, and eventually president of the World Peace Council. As a prominent politician, he was elected during a time of change within both the Labour Party and within Aotearoa as a whole. In this episode, political historian Jim McAloon offers compelling insights into the social and political context in which Gerald O'Brien lived and worked. Right. Well, I've been asked to talk about Gerald O'Brien's social and political context um, as a, a Labour Member of Parliament, uh, as an activist, uh, as a Wellingtonian, as an Irish Catholic, or perhaps I should say as a Catholic of Irish descent. Um, so all those things. Let me begin by referring to these wonderful photographs of the bookshelves. Because um, among my bad habits, I think, if I visit someone's house, the bookshelves are the first thing I look at, if I can, if I'm allowed to. And I mean, these are fascinating. Um, in a way, I think um, I felt almost at home. I think like his old friend Norman Kirk, O'Brien might have referred to books as his patient teachers. That was certainly Kirk's phrase. In a lot of ways, I mean, what, what's here is, is, is kind of familiar to me. I think I, I know O'Brien's intellectual world. There's a lot of social democratic or Labour politics, um, politics and history from the, the classics of the 30s, like the British Fabian Margaret Cole, to the diaries of the likes of Richard Crossman and Tony Benn, uh, memoirs by the likes of Harold Wilson, and so on. And that context is... is context of radical reform through parliamentary institutions, and I think that parliamentary dimension is really important. What also strikes me is, is the way in which uh, Gerald O'Brien evidently kept up with things, because uh, there's some quite recent ones in there, like that um, book by John Faulkner and Stuart McIntyre, their marvellously entertaining history of the Federal Caucus of the Australian Labour Party. So, yeah, we've, we've obviously got... Um, along with all that, uh, Irish history, some religion, uh, a man very much evidently with what, what, what is called a well-stocked mind. Uh, and I, what also appeals is the slightly um, untidy arrangement of some of them, books piled on top of books. Um, no doubt there's always new, new bookshelves on the way. So this is a man who had some secondary education, uh, but I think much of his reading was self-directed. So there's still that, that strand of continuing, continuing to educate himself through active, vigorous, and, and prolonged reading. But another theme that's strongly represented in those bookshelves is uh, work on East and Southeast Asia. And that struck me because I think like his parliamentary colleague and near-contemporary Warren Freer, who was Kirk's uh, Minister of Trade and Industry, 
I think Gerald O'Brien recognised earlier than many that New Zealand's future required an engagement with that part of the world. Now his political activities, as we know, um, went back to the 1940s in the Labour Party organisation in Peter Fraser's electorate, uh, Brooklyn, Wellington Central. And as O'Brien himself noted, his grandfather had nominated Fraser for Parliament in 1918, and his father had been active in the party in the 30s in the same part of Wellington. Um, the background of Gerald O'Brien's family, I guess you'd call it a respectable, lower middle class Irish Catholic and a family history with the Labour Party in Wellington. Quite possibly uh, the, the attention which the Labour Party in the 1910s paid to Irish nationalism, to the, the national struggle, uh, helped to bring O'Brien's grandfather and father into the party's orbit. They were long-time Catholic parishioners of St Mary of the Angels, it seems. And the, so to that extent too, I think yeah, a lot of the books, and especially a lot of the, the artefacts shown in one of the screens at the back, um, mass cards and um, devotional material, do suggest a, a very devout Catholicism, but also very much a progressive one, including... Um, one image which flicked up a few minutes ago, uh, a little portrait card of Pope John XXIII. Because O'Brien was in his 30s when Pope John called the Second Vatican Council and began to shake things up. And I think Pope John's messages about social justice and peace, especially peace, resonated with O'Brien and guided a lot of what he did. And I'm kind of inclined to suspect, too, that um, O'Brien would very much have approved of Pope Francis, uh, who I think is picking up the agenda of Pope John from 60 years ago. So that, that family background, as, as well as religious, is very much in the respectable lower middle class. Um, I gather that um, O'Brien's grandfather and father kept a shoe shop, um, but also that they weren't massively successful because they tended often to take more note of what people could afford rather than what might, uh, what might have made a decent profit. Um, after his wartime service in the Air Force, Young Gerald worked in warehouse sector, wholesale and retail, and no doubt the commercial training there prepared him for his business in importing and exporting, uh, which that sort of business background, I think, too, reflects the, the um, upward push of the Labour Party beyond the traditional working class to middle class progressives. I mean, this was quite a, a noticeable feature of the Labour Party in the 1960s, reaching beyond its trade union base. But I think it's also important to emphasise that um, many of the Parliamentary Labour Party and those involved in the party in the 60s and 70s and in Gerald O'Brien's time were first generation upwardly mobile, if you like. First generation university, first generation uh, successful business. So it's very much beneficiaries of that first Labour government and its, its uh, social welfare reforms. 
And his commercial background, his, his business success must have been appealing to the party hierarchy in the mid-60s, and he was one of a number of MPs of that sort of background who came into Parliament with the Labour Party in that decade. He had also been a Wellington City Councillor, and that path from local to central government was not at all unusual at the time. These days it's often the other way around, that the mayors seem to um, take that job after a stint in Parliament often. So when Arnold Nordmeyer retired in 1969, O'Brien succeeded him in the seat of Island Bay, which stretched over the hill to the, the north edge of Brooklyn, really. Um, yet Labour narrowly lost that 69 election, but perhaps there was a, a feeling or a hope that next time would be theirs. He criticised the International Monetary Fund, warned about New Zealand becoming what he called a branch plant economy in which our own people are simply peons in their own land. Like Norman Kirk, to whom he was close, he saw New Zealand as a classless society which had to be defended and extended by a continuation of more or less insulationist economic policies. So, like others in the party, he saw the great victory of 1972 as the opportunity to build a new society, a new era, what he called a social revolution. The other thing about his speeches in those first three years and on is that they reflected a very wide reading. Can't think of another member of Parliament who would have quoted the French philosopher Simone Weil in an address and reply speech. O'Brien's relationship to Kirk and Rowling, I think, needs a bit of unpacking. Publicly, Gerald O'Brien said that he thought Hugh Watt would be a better custodian of the mantle of Kirk than would Bill Rowling. And those who, like Gerald O'Brien, sort of claimed to be the guardians of Kirk's legacy, implicitly and sometimes explicitly denigrated Rowling, describing, himself, describing him as a puppet of the treasury. Now that I think was unfortunate, and I don't think it was, it was a particularly justified view. I think it was more the case, and, and here I'm, I'm drawing very much on Brian Easton's arguments, that Norman Kirk did not have much understanding of economics. Um, there was a division in cabinet between the realists and the utopians. Uh, Rowling was perhaps the leader of the realists, particularly as things got more difficult. But I guess I'd also want to observe that um, Henry Lang, the Secretary to the Treasury at the time, uh, was of such a caste that, that uh, he looks like a socialist compared to some of his successors. So looking back, one wonders what the fuss was about. Um, but it was a real division and it was unfortunate. And that undercurrent of criticism of Rowling as not fit to wear Kirk's mantle continued. There were frequent unhelpful comments from the likes of Ruth Kirk, Norm's widow, about trendy academics taking the party over, which again I think was, was well exaggerated. Most of the cabinet uh, who were the targets of this criticism, like O'Brien, were yeah, first generation out of the working class. Uh, so it really was, looking back, not only unfortunate, but much more about personalities than about any real differences of substance. The 1975 election campaign uh, was, I think, the dirtiest in living memory. 
it could by a fair margin claim that dubious distinction. Uh, some of you will remember what my students now have shown to them, Muldoon's Dancing Cossacks advertisement, which claimed that the Labour government's superannuation scheme was the path to a socialist or a Soviet New Zealand. But the idea of the Labour government, or some of them, as would-be Vladimir Lenin, had a fair currency, and it wasn't just this advertisement, it was splashed all over truth in the middle of 1975. That newspaper claimed, and, and this is the, the subject of one of the, the slides back there, um, one of the rotating slides, that newspaper claimed that Norman Kirk had set up a small group of advisers before he died to draw up alternative plans for New Zealand economic future, including nationalising the banks and all financial institutions. Uh, some authoritative sources have said that the whole idea of a think tank wasn't that credible. Others who were very close to Kirk knew nothing of it. Still others have said that there's nothing unusual in prime ministers consulting widely. But on one level, it fed into the, the line that O'Brien was beginning to run about Bill Rowling. Whatever about all that, Labour lost the 1975 election very heavily, although Gerald O'Brien did hold on to Island Bay. But then in the middle of 1976 came that other mysterious episode for which he is remembered. An encounter in a Christchurch motel with two young men, which left him with very significant injuries and a prosecution for indecent assault. The magistrate found that there was no case to answer, uh, didn't need to proceed to a full trial, and I don't think there's any more that I can sensibly or responsibly say about that, except to note that some people, not without reason perhaps, including Shirley Smith, Bill Such's widow, thought that O'Brien had very definitely been set up and that the whole affair was related to the Moyle affair, which, which ran a similar sort of narrative. But the combination of this motel episode, ongoing health issues, and perhaps Gerald O'Brien's increasingly open criticism of the direction of the Labour Party led Bill Rowling as party leader in 1977 to veto O'Brien's renomination for Island Bay in 1978. And I guess on one level that seems un yeah, sad, unfortunate. Uh, Rowling himself, I think, felt that he had no alternative given that um, O'Brien was becoming a, a lightning rod for unhelpful publicity. And, and I guess, too, this sort of does, does show Rowling's innate toughness because he sent the same message to his old friend Colin Moyle. Stand down, you're a distraction. Uh, and in the event, Moyle was rehabilitated and came back into Parliament in 1981. Gerald O'Brien, understandably enough, I guess, was very hurt by this, uh, and after some, some discussion with friends and allies, um, stood as an independent Labour candidate in Island Bay in 1978. Uh, got a respectable number of votes, not enough to win, but certainly enough to severely damage Labour's majority, um, the seat being held for Labour by 
coincidentally, another Irish Catholic, upwardly mobile fellow called Franco Flynn, uh, whose father, incidentally, had been um, an old red fed and had co-authored under a pseudonym the tragic story of the Whitey strike. Um, but yeah, understandably, I think Gerald O'Brien was, 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 was rather hurt by this. Uh, he began to um, get a little bit close to social credit, although he never joined the party, and indeed his membership of the Labour Party ended um, as a result of his standing against the official candidate. So thereafter, his political work focused on peace and on progressive internationalism, uh, especially the New Zealand arm of the World Peace Council and the campaign uh, ongoing, in which he was quite prominent, to return the Elgin marbles from the British Museum to Greece. And some might think this was a little eccentric, but it, it does sort of show, I think, the, the, the wide range of his interests. And it must be remembered, too, that Fausta, his, his wife, who, who is still alive, although very frail, was uh, of Greek-Romanian heritage. So O'Brien had a very long-standing connection with Greek affairs. He was honoured by the Greek government for this work. He also um, notably took a very significant interest in and was an advocate for um, immigrants of Eastern European background right through his career, to whom, as I said, he was personally close. Um, and I think um, it's, it's suggested that this actually goes back to his work with Peter Fraser, who was instrumental in bringing um, that, that well-known group of, of young Polish people um, to New Zealand in the mid-1940s. So that, that advocacy, that work for immigration, and particularly for the, yeah, the perhaps... Um, slightly forgotten people continued. Um, in his peace movement work, uh, which I think you might say was, was perhaps his major interest after 1980, quite rightly, Gerald O'Brien looked back to the Kirk government as a landmark, very definitely. Through the 1980s and 1990s, he worked on these issues, sometimes with a, a low profile, sometimes not. And I, it's perhaps... Um, worth recalling how dangerous the world seemed in the early 1980s as the Cold War intensified and there was uh, a good deal of concern about the state of the nuclear arms race. But one of, one of Gerald O'Brien's campaigns, and I think it's a, a point where I'd kind of like to finish, is working on the peace memorial and the peace flame in the Wellington Botanical Gardens. Um, he, was, he was quite determined that this should happen. The flame came from Hiroshima. Uh, he was in close touch with Japanese peace groups. It took more than 10, almost 10 years across two mayoralties. And I think as well as getting the, um, getting the memorial um, in there, getting it opened, uh, it also brought him back into contact with some old Labour Party colleagues, especially Jim Knox of the FOL and Sonia Davies. And indeed, I think there was something of a reconciliation uh, with the Labour Party, because uh, he worked with a lot of Labour politicians over the years. Um, in the peace memorial campaign, he worked very closely with um, Wellington's Mayor Jim Balich. Um, and in 2002, Annette King and the Rongatai Party organisation invited him to rejoin the party. I'm not sure if he did or not. The correspondence t seems to tail off, at least what I've been able to see. But I think, to, to re return to his work for, for peace, I think O'Brien's belief in the importance of memory and dialogue 
was to the fore. And that, I think, is why he emphasised the campaign for the memorial. But also, I think, um, despite what one might call some political misjudgments, perhaps some eccentricities. This was a man who campaigned for, for peace and justice in a lot of ways, a lot of fora, for a very long time. Yeah, we can see from all, all the parts of this excellent exhibition that he was a very complicated man. But in Perhaps I'd like to remember him most of all for that peace fountain. Uh, not in itself perhaps a big thing, but of great symbolic importance. So I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you for listening, and I'll be happy to see how the discussion goes. Thanks, Jim. That's really fascinating. I wonder, could you say a little bit about his... I, I know he had some strong views about the Vietnam War. You mm. talk about the peace process. Yeah, he, he, was, he was firmly um, an opponent of the Vietnam War. Uh, and in this, I think, he was very much on the, the left of the Labour Party because um, although the party, the parliamentary party's instincts were um, not to support the war, they felt that to be seen to be too vocal would be an electoral liability. Uh, certainly that was the case in 1966. Uh, Kirk made it clear that he didn't want his candidates talking about Vietnam. Now that was before Gerald O'Brien was in Parliament, but he was certainly very, very much a, a supporter of New Zealand's uh, disengagement from the military conflict and of humanitarian aid. And there are stories, too, that, that he used as important business to bring Vietnamese goods in. I'm not quite sure what they were, but again, you know, yeah, I guess it's one of those episodes that, that, that sh shows him as a, as, a, as a man of a certain degree of principle, if you like. Yeah. Kia ora, Jim. Thanks for that really fascinating talk. Um, this may be a bit of a cheeky question, but what do you think he would have thought of the current-day Labour government? Uh, it's interesting. Um, a few things. There was an interview with um, with the Dominion Post about uh, eight or nine years ago, in which, uh, as quite an elderly man by then, uh, Gerald O'Brien made it very clear that he was not a fan of proportional representation. Um, he said some fairly strong things about half the parliament are just appointed now and don't owe anybody to en anything to anybody. Um, so that, that's perhaps a place to start. I think he, he had that, you know, View, traditional view of the times um, of his, his generation that the link between a member of parliament and their electorate was crucial. So that, that's by way of preface. What would he think about Jacinda Ardern and, and Grant Robertson? I think he would have and yeah, maybe he made his views known because he, he was still alive and, and um, reasonably fit in 2017. Um, I think he would have been very unhappy at the coalition agreement with New Zealand First. Um, I suspect that... No, hang on. Um, some of his views on, on um, economics would have fitted quite nicely with New Zealand's first dislike of international financial organisations. So I think on one level he might have shared some of Winston Peters' populist um, financial analyses. But I think he would have been appalled at the xenophobia in, uh, that, that, that has um, characterised that party, uh, particularly its, its uh, not-so-subtle anti-Asian feelings. I suspect, like, I, yeah, I think 
his view of the, the present government would be that they cautious, not going far enough, fast enough, um, that technocratic incrementalism is all very well, but uh, more is needed. And uh, yeah, that's always a tension in social democratic politics, isn't it? Um, yeah, the activist heart heads in a certain direction, the um, political realist head holds back or wants to embed things. Yeah, I, I think his feelings would have been as complicated as are those of many of the, the government's supporters. <laughs> Can I put it that way? Can you or are you prepared to speculate if Kirk hadn't died and was Kirk's death Muldoon's gateway and was Muldoon's decline Roger Douglas's gateway? Yes, yes and yes. <laughs> uh, thanks Jim for that uh, great, great talk. I have a few memories of Gerald O'Brien going back to school days where he presented prizes uh, at Rongatai College when I, was, uh, when I was there and later interacting with him in the Island Bay Labor Party uh, briefly. But I wonder, perhaps not surprisingly, I want to return to the Vietnam War. And um, of course by, by 72, Labor had moved considerably. Uh, you're right about Labor being very uncertain about the issue and it costing them in 66, uh, even though Kirk was cautious about it. By 72, of course, they were committed to withdrawal drawing the, the small remaining training team, which they did within a week of, of coming into government. Uh, and uh, Gerald O'Brien, of course, to his credit, remained engaged with Vietnam well into his old age and was very active in the New Zealand-Vietnamese Friendship uh, Associational Society, uh, along with Kath Kelly as well. But I wanted to ask you a question about that, um, his views on external relations and particularly with respect to Asia. Because on the one hand, he's a fortress New Zealand kind of guy, uh, committed to protectionism. So on the other hand, he I think I have a sense that he, along with others in the Labour Party, were interested in engagement rather than containment of, a of Asia. So how do you think he squared, he and others in the party, who were such protectionists, squared that with engagement with, with Asia? Yeah, that, not just Vietnam, but Asia more generally. Yeah, so. sure. Okay. Yeah, squaring an engagement with Asia with with the commitment to a relatively insulated fortress, New Zealand. Um, I think the answer is uh, by trade agreements. I don't think the uh, exponents of of the post World War II political economy, I'll call it that, uh, ever ruled out trade agreements. Uh, and there was the beginnings of that indeed with Japan and other parts of Asia in the late 1950s. It is a contradiction, uh, and I think perhaps a contradiction that was not easily resolved. Um, I think, in, in, in fact, I'll go so far as to say that in the end, uh, those social democratic or Labour politicians of a slightly later generation who advocated opening up were more realistic uh, and said, if you want um, relations with Vietnam, with India, um, with Korea, then it's got to be trade and that means you know, more um, opening up, less regulation. So I think it was a contradiction in which they, they didn't go, they, they didn't follow the logic, if you like. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. Yep. Okay, that's great. Look, thank you very much, everyone. <laughs>